namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa uddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Alright, so I'm in a position to offer some reflections, words of encouragement. Take the opportunity. Gladdening the mind, gladdening the chitta. The need for gladdening. The third tetrad of the mindfulness of breathing, sensitive to citta, citta pati sangwedi, thoroughly sensitive to citta, abhibhamodayang jittang, the sublime or the refined gladness for the citta, satisfying the citta, making you feel contented, comfortable, samadhaṁ, smoothing, steadying, stabilizing citta, vimochayam, liberating citta, So this is the, not the liberation of Nibbāna, but uh, the liberation from these afflictive tendencies, so the citta becomes steady, bright, happy, and then insight can proceed into citta, saying, well, this is just been conditioned. One is aware this is citta, um, it's not a person. It does get knocked around, it does go big and small, it does get contracted, elated, sublime and gross. Mm. Stopping the, uh, ceasing the identification with this. The panya vimuti, citta vimuti, panya vimuti, citta vimuti, freeing citta from its compulsive afflictions. Panyavimuti, liberation through understanding, this is just citta. This is just what I've been experiencing. It's this. Mm. Who is that? Gladdening. Mm. The path um, really begins with gladness. Appreciation. Uh, Friendship, meeting good people, experiencing sharing, receiving gifts, offering one's gifts, one's talents, one's service, one's friendship, one's advice, one's, you know, whatever one can offer. So this is where it begins, this dana, 
And you must remember dana is not a donation as such. <laughs> Unfortunately, it tends to get uh, <laughs> limited or trivialized, in my opinion, or commercialized into that aspect. Everything is dana. We've been given birth, we've been given bodies, we've been given teachings. We're in a universe of dana. Why don't we participate in that? Why don't we value our capacity to give and share and feel moved to do so with whatever? May that be respected and appreciated. May we receive anamodana, appreciation from others, and also be able to appreciate ourselves, mudita, deep gladness for the gifts and the giving in oneself and in others. This is a cultivation that you take on fully, completely, thoroughly, deeply. Mm. Always just feel that personality, oh, well, you know, I'm not that good really, well, you know, all these problems. And, well, yeah, that's true, <laughs> on one level. And you go there, do you have the resources? deal with that if you're always approaching your practice from that looking into your personal condition tangle without resources to undo undo it what happens you just get intensely obsessive and about it all or struggling or fighting or suppressing what happens to the gladness in your life. So we look at resources. This resource of, of gladness. You know, we can think this is just trivial stuff, but, you know, looking at the Buddha's capacity to give bone-jarring similes <laughs> and deeply stirring you know, knife at your throat (laughs) language uh, in terms of urgency, I don't think he was fooling around, wasting his time by saying, you know, gladness uh, for more jayang, you know, and and gladden the mind. I don't think he was doing it just to be nice. I think he felt this was intrinsically necessary, uh, just as intrinsically necessary as sobering, chastening, restraining, urging, arousing, uh, warning, uh, focusing, you know, it's, it's all, you know, and yeah, what, what are the bits that we pick up, you know, and, and how does that happen when we pick them up in the wrong, in a way that's not balanced with gladness and appreciation, it becomes more business, job, get it done, better not fail, not doing it very well, you know, not as good as she is, never going to get there. They got it better than I have. Yeah. And we, we constellate into this the pathos of the person. I don't mean it's pathetic, I think it's deeply sad. There's pathos in it, the pathos of the person. So when you meditate, you can focus on all the kind of more rational or wisdom aspects without uh, 
uh, focusing, sharpening, analyzing, studying, but we miss out, if we miss out on the gladdening, then there's a substantial ingredient that's missing from our lives, and I think it's a very significant one, ingredient. Because of the person, because of the person and what made the person. The Shrank meditation teacher Godwin Samaratana was an exceptionally um, loving man, fine and modest, beautiful man. And he was talking to some summoneros and they said, well, how did summoneros are little, little boys, little boy monks, often 10, 12, 13 or something. They're not old enough to be full monks. Apart from Samuel Regino, he's... <laughs> so he's saying, well, how, what, how do you meditate? So we don't like meditating at all. It's, well, it's because they're only 12 or 13. He says, well, what do you like doing? So we like playing with dogs. So well, then meditate like you're playing with a dog then. <laughs> What do, you, what do you mean? <laughs> Just get that spirit. Get the spirit of, of gladness and enjoyment. Uh, and so it's saying for the... Um, for Moja, when one is deeply remembered and reflected on on precepts, on virtues, on skillful conduct on the kind offerings one has made, on the generous intentions one has displayed, on the resolutions, on the sensitivity, on the harmlessness, one should feel gladdened, happy, satisfied. One should dwell in that. And they made no bones about it. You look in the suttas and they're saying, it's great gain, great gain for me that I have, you know, had this happened, this sense of virtue has arisen in me and I've developed it and been encouraged in it. This is enormous gain for me. Gladdened by it. Gladdened to associate with wise people. Appreciating it, gladdening it. Why is it that this is kind of so much more tricky? We always think precepts as obeying laws, perhaps. Not being blamed. The fear of sin. the fear of sin and perdition and hell or something. But the image around the precepts in Buddhism is a flower, not a lot, not a court or a tribunal, or even a fine balance of justice, which is very legalistic. It's the sense of something beautiful flowering the sensitivity to the welfare of others, the sensitivity to one's chitta, mm-hmm. to realize it's seducible, vulnerable, effectable. Be careful with this. It's something rather precious. So this is a way in which we access chitta, or recommended to access chitta. But you know, it, it doesn't always happen that way, does it? This is because of the person. 
in my opinion. Person is the result of um, social conditioning. Family conditioning, school, work, business, social attitudes, performance, productivity, efficiency, effectiveness, clean, tidy, law and order, punctuality, tying your shoelaces, (laughs) and all that get ahead so you know when that comes in what does that do particularly if one's getting this at an early age let alone other things So somebody's telling me, you know, about being seven years old and his, he and his brother and his mother's schizophrenic and drunk, and his, so he has to go out and buy her gin and whiskey for her every week, you know, a quart or so of gin or whiskey when he's seven years old, trying to get this, and father leaves. So is this he and his brother, this very unfortunate, crazy woman in a city. And then, so one day, he and his, when his dad left, they, he and his brother walking around, I think New York, in the pyjamas, looking for their father. Until somebody finds them. Brother's a heroin addict. childhood yeah right view the results of good and bad deeds there's benefit from making offerings from uh, sacrifice, from relinquishing one's own. There is mother, there is father. And I think this part of the rubric is to say, you know, there's that sense of being appreciatively parented. (laughs) There's one sense of one had uh, role models who would support, encourage, protect, love, play. And we should remember this. So this is, you know, in that Buddha's presenting this as the standard for right view. You realize, oh, 
oh, you know, I'm not just an isolated individual. I have this wonderful family thing that I've come out of and I've been resourcing it. For some people, that may very well be the case. And I'd imagine in classical India, that could very well have been the case. You know, village societies, no particular pressure, jobs to do. Just, you know, kick around, play with the kids. This is so. What happened to that? Too busy. I always remember my own father. He was a very um, hard-working person. I was the second of the two kids, and my brothers. Because my father was, he left school when he was fourteen, so he had no, he had no qualifications at all, apart from just savvy. <laughs> He just knew how to, to do things, get things done. He'd turn his hand to whatever turned up. And he'd try this and try that. And he could just talk to people and, you know, build up, make business associations and make, made a living out of it, just picking up skills as he went along. But he meant he was very much always a self-made person, and, uh, you know, working on his own initiative. So he worked long, long hours whenever there was a chance, you know, to make some money. To get it, you know, to get the food on the table. And my brother said when it, when I came along, he 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 changed. He he wouldn't work. He'd make sure he take weekends off, so he could play with his kids. And that meant during the week he'd be working till ten o'clock at night, so he could have the time when he could take us out. Take us out of the city, going to the, going to the country and camp for a weekend. It weren't easy. Kids aren't easy. Uh, but you know that sense of, and you don't even notice it really. You don't even really value it. Just that sense of somebody there, and they sacrifice themselves for your welfare. You wonder why he doesn't come home at night because he's working, so that he can take the weekend off. Mm. And therefore, one something gets established that is not—it's not reasonable. It's not built upon reason. It's built upon love, and it's built upon a, a primary sensitivity that comes from that sense of love and appreciation. It doesn't matter whether the people you love are living up to standards or not, you know. It's not not conditioned by that. Whether they're effective or efficient or you know, my mother always you know, you do some drawing and she'd come and say, Oh that's very good, you know, you did some scribbly little thing. Oh very good, you know, encourage you to play and draw and fool around and you know. It's childhood, and you know, it seems so trivial, but what's happening now? You're getting this huge sense of people appreciating your chitta, your ability to be spontaneous and sensitive and imaginative, you know, without some goal, without some profit, without some future, just be in the present 
and uh, be unimportant. And be loved for it. So, you know, that's it's always great, you know, great gain for me, really. I deeply appreciate it. And I express gratitude to my parents regularly. They're both dead now. But you have to ask your parents' permission before you become a monk. So when I, I wrote to my parents and my dad said, well, pass on the advice my father gave me. He says, whatever you feel good, makes you feel happy, you follow that. And the only thing I'd mention is if you, wherever you are, you should live with respect for the people who are sharing, you are sharing your life with. That's it, you know. Go ahead. You know, that's the, you don't have to be something. I'm sure he didn't particularly expect me to be a Buddhist monk. (laughs) You know, no grandchildren, you know, just that sense of, do your thing, son. And uh, that that permission, I think that's, without even really really thinking about it, that's so built in for me. I never think about it that much. Because it's just, well, yeah. You know, like, because it's it's kind of gone in at a a pre-rational level. One doesn't feel one's got to live up to other people's things or get a lot of stuff done. I do, I do my best, but, you know, but I do it from a place of, uh, I guess, a place of love, really, a place of dana, generosity. I don't want to sound like I'm so great, but, you know, so I only... uh, I only teach out of that. Because it's what the chitta does. If everyone thinks about oneself in this role, we think, I don't, I don't like to do it. As a person. You know, you get silence, authority figure, yeah, 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 you know. But there you go. So, now what is this? Where, where can we? Where? Why do I encourage you? Because most of you are very earnest and sincere and hardworking. And almost all of you are self-critical, as far as I could understand it. Uh, There's an aspect of jitta, we think of, I don't use mind very much, to translate jitta, because some parts of jitta you barely think of your mind. There's a level, we say heart, it's emotional. Of course, emotional stuff is also very uh, conditioned, distorted, bruised, afflicted, reactive, not always reliable. Mm. 
it has to be purified. In, in a sense, that's purified in several ways. One of them is relationally purified. One is seen, one is appreciated, one is heard. Uh, I don't think you can always do that for yourself. Uh, retreat centers and retreats have certain enormous benefits and certain bits they're not always so good about or so fully on board with. But certainly developing a sense of you know, community in our little time together here of sharing and respect and gestures and you know, whatever one can do in this particular form. Also the imaginative level. I say imaginative, then clearly the earnest Buddhist Dhamma practitioner can think, oh, make-believe, you know. But just remember, most of your life is imaginative. It's just... <laughs> You imagine the future, you imagine yourself, you imagine what you could be, you imagine what you're not, you imagine what you should be. It's just this disease imagination. It's imagination based upon fear and compulsion and um, things of this nature. So we reiterate it on a kind of subliminal level. We reiterate the burden of our lives, the responsibility I need to get and become and be. And, and a, really a way that is, when you try to go through it rationally, it doesn't add up, yet you still do it. You know, who, who's putting the pressure on me? You can say, what, you know, who's putting the pressure on me? You can just find something to tag it on, but you know what's putting the pressure on you. Your personality, your personal personality pack with its structured and conventional um, form. So we come to the, the imagined level and we take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Again, this sounds like, okay, I'm signing up to the club. You know, I'm, I'm on board, I salute the flag kind of thing. <laughs> Guess he did what he did at school. <laughs> Pledge allegiance to the Buddha, the Dhamma Sangha. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, it could probably it could operate on that level, I guess, because it's probably multi-leveled. But there's an imaginative level, which you take it. You know, the Buddha is the guide, my friend, the supporter, who bestows blessings on me. That's why these devotional chants—they are—they're they're contrived by these attire. I think they have various forms. You know, all the Buddhist traditions have these forms in which the Buddha is depicted in various ways, inspiring, role model, courageous, clearer, but it's also those who looks at me with fond regard and, and a sense of fathering, you could say. And not in a belittling way, but the, the one who can help pick me up and shelter me, give me protection. You know, now, we can have, obviously we can have issues about males or things of this nature, I don't blame you, but you don't have, you know, just try to take that word and, and de-take the form out of it. If you don't like those particular forms, just awakening, the quality of awakening, that which can awaken is, on, is not something I've got to desperately stretch upwards for, but something can also turn around and look at me with fond regard, with caring regard, with compassion.
saying, come on, you can do this, come on, I'm there for you. We can bear with this, I'm not giving you up, I'm not going to let you down. The Buddha never turned anybody away. Uh, well, you see this exemplified sometimes when he, you know, I'll ask him a question at an appropriate time, he'd say, not right now. They asked him three times, he said, I have to answer. If somebody asked me three times, I just have to answer. And that sense in which, and often he'd say things they didn't really want to hear, but he said, you asked me, I have to say it. But essentially never turned anybody away as being murderers, you know, people, kings, butchers, murderers, slaughterers, parasites, and he did never turn anybody away. Uh, saying, you know, the worst he'd ever say was misguided. <laughs> and that's still a, that's a pathos in that, rather than a recrimination. So uh, what, what is this, is, this is awakening, that which never gives up on us. When our personality can very often give up on us five times a day. So we just imagine what what would be there, what would that be for you that never gives up, no matter what, and then turns around and looks at you with compassion, respect, regard. How would your dreaming mind imagine that? How would your imaginative mind figure that? Can you practice with that? There's something that's actually got some importance to it. Dhamma, that which is immediately available, witnessable in yourself, pachatang, inviting, encouraging, come here, come in. Pertinent, leading you onwards. What would that be like? Something that reaches into you. Something that points. This is where you put your foot. This is where your handhold is. This is the bit that you can get hold of right now. Take it. Take it in. Hold it. Digest it. Make much of it. You don't get all of it. You'll get a bit. Get the bit, that bit. You know, other people have got that bit. You get this bit, the one that works for you. Get hold of it dwell in it, never give up on it and it's going to lead onwards some of these Dhamma practices are extraordinarily simple I mean, some people just got their whole life chanting a mantra you know, just that just one mantra using that with beads because the same sense of truth strengthening, clarification can occur through any one of these thousands of Dhamma doors. You take it, because it's really, it's not the system, it's not just the teaching, it's where it goes to, isn't it? It's in your chitta that's going to awaken, not in the book. So what goes in, what do you get hold of? Can you make much of that, explore, see where it leads to? Sangha. The human assembly of those who aspire to it, even. Those who are on the path, not fully realized. Still part of the assembly. 
Buddha, thing is, if you, it says the Buddha, if you take refuge, fully take refuge, then you are a disciple. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't keep all the precepts all the time, say, so, well, that's a, that's a, uh, you know, that's a sadness for you. That's definitely going to be a hindrance for you. But then it's best if you acknowledge that. Then we say it's great progress if you acknowledge that, make an effort to get past it. This is considered great progress. Well, I mean, it's pretty generous, isn't it? And kind of beat you up, you idiot. You know. <laughs> so when we touch these things, I say there's an imaginative level where you just imagine, what would that be like? What would it be that kind of freedom, that permission, that, that reaching in? What would that feel like? How would you configure it? How would you draw it? How would you move in it? How would you sing it? How would you play with it? How would you make it yours? An imaginative level. Because the imaginative level, citta, it drops beneath, it's a place where we drop beneath the personality. The structure, the socially conditioned personality, we can dream. We can imagine what it would be like if, or anything that reminds us of that. How nature could remind us, you know, things are like this. It's not straight, it's not fair, it's not just, it's just this. It's all living and this, you know, Turkish remind us. You know, Turkey like taking life too seriously? I don't think so. That's, <laughs> uh, you know, and th- of course you can say, well, yeah, I'm a dumb bird, but yeah, sure, on one level. But they probably suffer less than we do. <laughs> Somebody shoots them. <laughs> you know, so. When we realize we have so many more um, uh, advantages than these other creatures, so many more advantages, so much more richly endowed. <laughs> you know, how, what is this weight of suffering that we also we get endowed with? You know, could be better. And these things are also get factored in. You know, very early. This sense of, you know, I've talked about acceptance, I don't want to make that sound, it's a certain reluctance to it, it's, you know, oh, well, I accept it, <laughs> you know, I can't do anything about it, so well, there you go. This is just the problem of language. When I talk about loving kindness, you think, oh, I can't be very loving to this thought. No, it's not, it's just the general sense of, of something which doesn't Compare uh, apamano, the non boundary, the no measurement to it. It's a certain immediacy in the moment, playfulness, you could say. Play is where we operate with full vigor and full clarity with something that has no result, or we're not aiming at a result. Work is when you have the whole result 
and no present vitality, just driven willpower. That's called work. When you're going to get it, results at the end of the week, the end of the year, when you retire and so forth, and of course, all you get is stress. Postponing of it. And we can, so that's the work. Play. I mean, ice skating is play. It's not just casual. Um, it can be exceptionally refined, and as you grow more and more skillful, play can be exceptionally refined and subtle. Dancing, so on. Um, calligraphy. These we call play forms. I mean, you can make them into work, you make a living out of it, as unfortunately happens in sport. And it becomes obsessed with money, and then all the fouling and the nastiness grows. But originally, it was just the joy of kicking a ball around or knocking something in the air, just a completely foolish thing. <laughs> because it gave an opportunity for people to be with each other in a non-aggressive or even a playfully aggressive way. You know, you play at being aggressive, but it's just that. And you know, that doesn't matter. It's, so what? You know, do it again. But then, of course, that gets distorted. So where where is the model now we, we look for to where there's just that sense of engagement, fully engaged, because of the vitality and the, the, the joyfulness of being fully engaged at a chitta level, at the level of imaginative heart, rather than functioning brain. And so we say chanting is that. For some, some people it's just throwback to Sunday school, I don't know. Um, but that's that's the aim of it, and why in many traditions a lot of chanting because it brings present vitality, communal sense. Everybody can participate, and that's there's a sangha there for that time, a sense of sangha, and people feel nourished by that, and that acts as a resource. Then one knows that place, one knows that tone, one knows that field. It becomes, you know. Entrained. So when you meditate, you come from that place. That's your basis. And you, then you've got that which can steady, support, comfort, protect, encourage, steer. Otherwise, what, somebody else will do it. Then you know what that is. A gladdening. Imagining. One retreat I was teaching recently, I just got people to do doodling. Rather than talk about your mind, talk about it, about you know, the feeling. Just get a pen in your, pencil in your hand, scribble around a piece of paper so you don't care what it looks like. <laughs> Get your arm loose, nice and loose, and then just, okay, let the hand start to, to feel into the mind state and just start tracking on the paper. And people, you know, one notices you do that first, it's tentative, and it starts to get some momentum, and you go, hey, what's happening here? Something's going on. And you look at it, and you well, there's your mind. <laughs> And it's, it's, it's not always uh, flowery, it's pretty intense, but there it is. 
And instead of, oh, my, my, it's just there it is. You also recognize however much you've written, there's always the paper, there's always the blank behind it all. And so you approach, you can approach, this is just an example, you approach this experience of conditionality from a non-rational, non-verbal level. See it like that. Because, as I might have said, the rationality is not the only intelligence we have. And I would say that despite its considerable gifts and need to have those, those skills, it is also profoundly conditioned in an, in an unhelpful way. It's the results, linear thought, um, forming conclusions, fast as you can. That's the conditioning, isn't it? Follow the standards, follow the, you know, make sure you're getting it right. That's the conditioning. And so that wonderful pen that you have in your, in your brain is being held by another hand and it's trying to do straight lines. Another, something else is holding it. When it could be pretty, the wrist could flex, the fingers could flex, but it's being held stiff to do nice straight lines. Now, where are the straight lines in your life? So, you know, another suggestion, reclining meditation, because in reclining the person tends to shut off to a little degree, one is never at one's most peak rationality reclining. (laughs) So you lie on your back, put your legs in an arch, feet on the floor, just... Start from the basis. This is when you come into a slightly sub-rational level. And uh, what would you like to feel? The ground beneath you, the earth beneath you, something you really rest on. What would you like to feel? The space above you, or the sheet above you, or the blanket, or it's just something that's warm and protective, and you can just be there with that and soak in it. What would that be like? Imagine it. Do it. Play with it. If you want to make something out of reclining meditation, which um, I generally, for a certain formality, so I don't just curl up and go to sleep. So you have to take a fairly formal position, either on the side or I I prefer on my back because the hips are so bony. But then reclining, opening the palms, the hands, a focus on both palms, the energy there, soles of the feet, the energy there. And I've got four points. And then maybe my back, spine, nice, some ground beneath. And then start to focus on, say, the center of the chest, center of the belly maybe the center of the head, one or two of those. And just take time to to light up. So one has a template, and then what's happening within this? And you just start to radiate or suffuse or permeate, safe, comfortable, present, just aware, whatever. 
just the way of let, letting the jitta unravel. And of course, much of it is just circumstantial, blah, 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 blah. But that's, <laughs> that's part of meditation, isn't it? A good amount of that is just that static, the, the surface noise just bubbling away, and you yeah, don't bother with that. Or that has to be the way it is. There has to be all this crumpled stuff coming out in the wash. Uh, and then you're looking, you keep resonating with the core meaning. Refuge, present, held, safe, comfortable. Just keep resonating with that and let the other stuff move through. And of course there could be other things, but one could cultivate other resonances, but I would suggest that's a very, it's a good one to have in terms of your practice. Because as far as I could make out, this particular note on the scale of, of human experience is not very loud for, most, for many people. In fact, it's more plugged up for some. Uh, and then, then, you know, sense of being blessed, being receiving, which again is pretty difficult for people. Instead of being responsible, doing, making things happen, pulling my weight, making sure I'm doing as good as next, fitting in and so forth. Time when you just put those um, sankharas to one side, they may have relevance at some time or another. Most things have some relevance sometime. But if they're locked, they sooner or later pick up disease. They pick up disease. They pick up obligation when it should be just care and responsibility. They pick up straining effort when it should be just joyful, joyful endeavour. They pick up self-criticism rather than wise assessment. Hmm, this is lacking. That's lacking. That wasn't so good. Instead, you get this, this generic feeling of wrong and wounding. So it's to, you know, dislodge these sankharas, which we must dislodge. Otherwise they, they, they can be the background, the imagined, the imagined self-formation. Yeah. The self-formation is based on an imaginative level of alone, got to do it for myself. Mm. Yeah. That, imag- that imaginative, if it's based upon that, that if imagination is based at that level, then everything that comes from there will not contradict that basis. However, however good and effective, you know, the, the pinnacle is, the basis will still have this fundamental um, ma- wrong alignment. The basis of our life is a gift. We didn't earn it. We didn't have to earn it. That is seems so strange. Though you rationally you may, you know, 
But once, yeah, but once you grow up, you yeah, no, 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 go back to that point. <laughs> Not about, well, I've, yeah, but I've got to make a living, and yeah, yeah, now, but go back to that, the meditative place, and dwell in that. Then what can arise from there if we linger? What kind of volition comes out of that if we linger at that place? Is it something more loving? joyful has it has a certain flexible strength rather than rigid urgency yeah. isn't there something that wishes to rise up rather than desperately trying to get up <laughs> mm-hmm. this then I would say is people sometimes talk about bodhicitta and I wonder what that actually means. It's a Tibetan term. But maybe this is it. <laughs> it means there's a, there's a natural uh, inclination towards, uh, you know, towards awakening from a very basic embodied place. And at the imaginative level is where you come into the first level of embodiment. First, the energy transfers into to the body. The body feels, oh, there could be. You know, it brightens. It becomes. You can feel playful energy run through it. So this is the, the imaginative. Remember, chitta does transfer its energies into into the body. And so we want to get at that place where the energies we transfer into the body are energies based upon. Gladness, the ability we have to rise up without having to do it. So, you know, reflect upon some of this if it's useful. If you've got a really lot, lot of thinking mind, why is that? You need to play. If you've got a lot of energy in you, you need to play more, that's all. You can't just keep feeling bad about it or trying to shut it all up. You just got some noisy kids there. <laughs> they'll run around a bit and they'll feel happy and they'll work for you. <laughs> so this is my my advice to you and I hope it's for your welfare. Kataya Sadhu Karanga Dhamma Sehe